0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense.
1: Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Universities are complex institutions whose organization and norms go back centuries, Among the most important of these traditions is that of shared governance, that faculty have a role to play in the management of the institutions they serve. Even if civilian institutions can agree on the value of shared governance, however, governance can take many forms. In professional military education, where directives from up the chain of command take on special significance, the faculty role is even less clear. A recent article in the War Room argued that renewed emphasis on shared governance could be an important tool toward developing the intellectual overmatch against our enemies advocated by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Two authors of that article join us today to discuss their vision of shared governance and its potential role within professional military education. Dr. Nicholas J. Rowland is professor of sociology at Penn State and the academic trustee on Penn State's Board of Trustees. He's also a former chair of their university faculty senate and has published widely on governance, forecasting, and strategic planning. Dr. Matthew C. Wessner is a professor of institutional research for the United States Army War College. His scholarship examines how faculty ideology shapes students' political development and perceptions of free speech on college campuses. Westner also writes about shared governance in higher education. He is a former chair of the Pennsylvania State University Faculty Senate. So you may be noticing a pattern here, ladies and gentlemen. But welcome to A Better Peace, uh, gentlemen. It's great to have you here.
2: It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for the invitation.
1: So I want to ask a question for both of you, um, and that is um, the inspiration for writing the article for The War Room, that got to talking about just sort of to bring the shared governance conversation to PME. Who, you know, who whose idea was it, and uh, uh, how did it happen? I probably
0: had the initial inspiration just because, having joined the War College not long before, I got to watch elements of shared governance at a completely new institution in a new environment, and I was fascinated by the differences. But perhaps as interesting is when I would talk to faculty at the War College about their perceptions of shared governance. They saw it as the wild West. Uh, the notion that faculty should have direct input on not only uh, institutional decisions in the curriculum, but also on how things are run just uh, struck them as short of anarchy. And I don't think there was an appreciation for the possible positive things that could be brought to the table by the faculty. And I think it was a misconception about how powerful shared governance is outside of PME.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Nicholas, when when you were able to bring in this discussion then with Matt about shared governance, um, had you guys, since you both had worked on the faculty senate at Penn State, um, have, do you consider yourselves uh, uh, prophets of the future of shared governance? Do you do you see this as a as a uh, you know a policy advocacy as well as analysis?
2: The easy answer to that question is yes and yes. (laughs) Yes and Um, yes, okay. (laughs) As it happens, I was the chair-elect of the Senate at the exact same time that Matthew was the outgoing or the past chair of the Senate. And so we had all sorts of opportunities as uh, uh, officers to interact. And it was when I was chair of the Senate that Matthew brought along a colleague from the Army War College to attend one of our uh, Senate plenary sessions, and Um. Then afterwards, we had drinks and discussed, uh, you know, the, the goings on of the day. And I was very curious about what was going on in the War College and in uh, military higher education in general when it came to the concept of shared governance and how, if and how that was being implemented. And it turned out to be a really rich and really interesting conversation in part because I had no idea just how extensive or not it was. And um, it turns out that it, it revealed some perceptions that, Mm -hmm. very similar to what Matthew was saying before, where at a place like Penn State, where the faculty have, for the most part, complete control of the curriculum, that seems so untenable. And there was a read that that's basically how all civilian higher education was. But it turns out that was more perception than reality. So as Matthew and I started to do some empirical work, looking through constitutions and bylaws and standing rules for um, just shy of a couple hundred institutions uh, in the U.S., it turns out that's not nearly as widespread as many think. And so um, I think that's what got me interested. I saw the perceptions and I really wondered what the empirical reality was, and we were in a good position to start looking at that.
1: So so that, that of course, leads to the obvious question. So what is the empirical reality on forms of faculty governance beginning in the civilian world? So you say Penn State has a Senate. Um, for our listeners, could you explain the difference between a Senate model and other similar and other models of of, uh, faculty
0: governance? Well, there are at least three different uh, models that we've we've talked about. Uh, One is the Senate model, where there is uh, representatives, where faculty will elect individuals who will serve on their behalf in a representative institution. Another is an assembly model, where all of the faculty meet together and they act as the sovereign body which speaks for the will of the faculty. And then there's some hybrid models where they have a senate and an assembly. Uh, But typically large institutions have senates because it just doesn't make sense to have 6,000 Penn State faculty gather together in a giant auditorium. Right. So representative models come out of necessity with large institutions. But there are also reasons why small institutions have senate models. So some of what we talk about in the paper are the different ways in which shared governance can be constructed, but it has to be tailored to the needs of the institution itself.
1: Mm -hmm. So, uh, and how long has Penn State used the Senate model?
2: Hmm. This is a great, this is a perfect question, (laughs) perfect timing for it, because um, just earlier this week, Penn State finally celebrated the 100 year anniversary of their Senate. And so- now, keep in mind, the 100 year anniversary was actually last year, but because of COVID, there was no gathering. Fair. Um, so it's 1921 that the Senate was instituted. Now, Penn State becomes a really useful case, especially for folks that are in military higher education, to think about over the life course of the Senate. So when the Senate began, um, it was relatively small in stature and it was run by the president. So the chair, of the Senate was in fact the president also of the university. And it wasn't until 40 plus years later that the body of the Senate, it was deemed that it should be a faculty majority. What a radical concept, obviously. <laughs> right? Uh, but that the university faculty Senate should elect its own members and it should determine its own leadership rather than have it... Um, a de facto extension of administrative positions. And so as you can see, while Penn State might sort of feel like it's on one of the far sides of the continuum where they have full control over the curriculum, this wasn't always the case. Uh, Penn State has gone through a variety of different models over time. And we think that there's probably a version, some version of what's happened at Penn State that would be appropriate for a contemporary military higher education.
1: Mm-hmm. And at Penn State, so for the the Senate model. Do uh, individual units or departments then elect? So is it a, is it a Republican form of government or is it a, uh, or is it a, an older version of a corporatist version where folks uh, uh, are simply appointed from different branches?
0: Well, the, the Penn State model is mostly elected. I say mostly because 80% of the Senate are faculty who are elected by their units, whether it be their college, Uh, or their campus, because Mm -hmm. all of the campuses are represented in this giant corporate senate. Sure. Uh, 10% are appointed by the administration, and the thinking is that having senators who are administrators is important to promote dialogue so that we can work together. And 10% are students. So this is, we've designed something which is very representative and it's based largely on the proportional size of the faculty in any given unit. Uh, but because you have about 250 senators representing, was it, 65, 6,800 faculty, mm-hmm. it, it's still a fairly large body, but it represents an enormous institution, mm-hmm. very complex, very geographically dispersed. So the fact that it works as effectively as it does is almost a miracle <laughs> because it is a rather large institution with very diverse interests.
1: Right. And because I would think that for a lot of smaller institutions, right? Two hundred and fifty would be about the size of the entire faculty, um, and so I guess that that raises the question of you know if you say six thousand is too many, but two hundred and fifty is manageable. Is there a is there a size of institution where it would be it would be preferable to stick with an all faculty version, or or do we just imagine senates getting smaller in proportion to the uh, to the size of the faculty? So in other words, a school that had a uh, a faculty of two hundred and fifty. Should they say, well, then it would be great if they had a Senate of, what would that end up? About 30 people. That's Um, a fascinating,
2: yeah. yeah, Fascinating question that I I don't think I've thought all the way through. However, my instinct politically speaking Mm -hmm. is to determine what's appropriate for the institution. And Mm -hmm. it's important to know that you, you, there's really no one size fits all there's one size fits one when it comes to shared governance. And, um, I guess if I was in a position like that, and for example, if I was in a, a position to, to determine how to share governance in a, a military higher education setting, I would try to determine whether or not uh, I wanted all hands on deck,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or whether or not I wanted a extremely active but smaller representative group. In order to, I don't want to overstate the significance of this, but in order to uh, concentrate the institutional knowledge and wherewithal into like a smaller core active group that then um, does much of the work in terms mm-hmm. of the logistics, but also then is responsible for returning back to their units. And if their units become dissatisfied with them, then they will be replaced.
1: Right. Well, and, and this, uh, which leads me to the sort of the, the bigger and the tougher point, especially as we're talking about PME, but, but even uh, with any kind of faculty shared governance, um, how does or how should faculty and administration in any institution um, decide on what the formal role of faculty would be, right? Our faculty, uh, do faculty have the power of initiative? We're talking about European Union talk here, right? Should it's the power of initiative or is it merely do they have veto power over certain decisions or is it merely a consultative power? Um, how do we decide what kind of power and what kind of areas the faculty should have, Matthew?
0: This is a very important question because we recognize that in PME, it's not possible and not even advisable to have faculty with absolute control over the curriculum. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's legal issues certainly, right. uh, but this is still a military organization. So, what we envision at its best is that the faculty senate would become A Very influential body in advising the senior administration Mm -hmm. on issues like curriculum and to some extent operations Uh, Many faculty senates don't have direct or ultimate authority, but they operate through their wisdom and their prestige and many leaders would be reluctant To cross the majority of the faculty Senate merely because that would put the onus of the responsibility on them directly Mm -hmm. so Even a consultative model, which is very common in higher education, uh, would be a considerable improvement in terms of the power sharing relationships than a model where the faculty are simply ignored.
1: Right.
2: Mm. On that Um, note, um, I think that Matthew makes a great point on uh, creating a consultative model. I think that the next step from there... And I, also, I'd just like to—you uh, can't underscore enough the idea that it is not advisable for a Penn State model to simply be ported directly <laughs> into PME. Everyone, I think, is needs to be clear about that—that that we're for not. Sure. Because the funny part is, is that it sounds like that mm-hmm. when you advocate mm-hmm. for shared governance in PME. It 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 sounds and it feels that way, and as a result, I think because of these perceptions, people respond this way. Mm-hmm. Um. So getting back to the point about consultation, the next question that's extremely significant once you get over the hurdle of recognizing that it is efficient and in the best interest of the institution to not squander the concentrated pool of experts that it hires in order to deploy this work in a, in a, you know, and involve them on the front end, right? The next question is, well, how do you decide who should be consulted with? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the position that we take in the paper is that an option, and we believe this is a good option, is to have the faculty elect who it is that get into these um, environments where there is consultation. And I do believe that that especially applies to curriculum, but that there are opportunities to selectively engage faculty members Mm -hmm. uh, in issues of relevance for operations, especially if you have an expert, for example, in the faculty that deals with a topic of particular interest to the institution. And so you could definitely utilize their expertise in a way, even if they're not endowed with any decision making responsibility in the process.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, while we're, while we're talking about this, when we talk about ex officio positions that people have, is what in your experience has been the relationship between a faculty senate? or any sort of formal faculty governance at the institutional level, and the individual responsibilities of, say, department chairs um, or uh, or in, in other, you know, so the idea that a, a department chair of some institutions, PME institutions, will have regular meetings of the university leadership that includes department chairs, um, who have obviously very significant administrative responsibilities. But is there, is there the danger that uh, a faculty senate would somehow circumvent or duplicate, or any other verbs you can think of that would be problematic, the existing institutional roles of department chairs in advocating for, for their faculty? Has this been a problem at Penn State, for example?
0: Well, at Penn State, the faculty senate uh, has two areas of, of primary responsibility. There's curricular matters for which they have direct control and then there are comments on operations,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know, give good examples. We had a, something of a revolt over a healthcare initiative about nine years ago at Penn State, and technically, the Senate has absolutely no authority over matters like healthcare. Mm-hmm. But the body itself is so well known and regarded that when it came out strongly in opposition to an initiative put forward by the administration, eventually the administration uh, ceded ground, mm-hmm. and so. There are opportunities for senates to engage in the operational aspects of the university. But there, even at Penn State, it's purely consultative. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that that faculty senates can do is warn administrations about potential problems before they happen. That consultation function is a chance to avoid danger and to make decisions fully aware of what the faculty's objections are likely to be. So uh, in areas where it's not under sovereign control there's still a wonderful opportunity to consult with faculty who are in the know and to steer clear of policies that otherwise could damage the administration or their prestige.
1: Right. Right. I I, I think of the both of you especially with the fact that you Matthew are here at the War College and Nicholas you're still at Penn State that that you you are uh uh a a kind of uh Liaison committee here between between uh, pme and uh, and and civilian institutions. Um, outside of the study that you've done of these kinds of things, right? Have you been involved in any kind of consulting with institutions on one side or the other of this pme civilian divide um, on developing forms of shared faculty governance? Do people come and ask you, so how do we make a Senate work?
0: It's beginning to happen,
1: yeah. Uh, of course, after article, everybody hears this, after everybody hears this podcast, there's just no telling uh, what will happen. But, we are but,
2: available for those <laughs> services. I'd like to make that clear.
1: <laughs> fair, fair.
0: No, it's actually terrific in that I've been having discussions with colleagues and other PME institutions who are struggling with these very issues, mm-hmm. and I think there's some excitement that this is something that other the scholars have been thinking about and been trying to apply in a new world. Mm-hmm. I think that PME has for some time been experimenting with elements of shared governance, but it often lacks the practical expertise to understand how to implement it. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for a person who's entirely been in the PME world or for someone coming from the outside to understand the unique environment under which PME operates. So having uh, one foot in each world, the two of us are in a good position to think through the way in which this model might be applied in a totally new environment.
2: Right. Yeah, I'd like to add to that too. I mean, Mm -hmm. as a sociologist, obviously the formation of groups is something that's near and dear to my heart. And when I think about uh, PME institutions initiating shared governance, either in part or in whole, there needs to be a necessary recognition that the amount of experience, which then of course directly translates to ability to um, communicate, understand, execute, um, is going to be limited at mm-hmm. the beginning. you know. Uh, uh, depending upon the size of the group, some of them may never have had experience in shared governance until they literally are in the act of sharing it. Whereas um, a place like Penn State, I mean, there are senators that we have now that have put in multiple decades uh, of contribution. And with 200 faculty members on the Senate at any one time, you could have upwards of 800 to 1,000 years of experience all working together on these issues. And you don't get that overnight. I mean, that is the outcome of 100 years' work. There's no question. Um, But when the groups start, I think we need to recognize that they'll be in a building process. Therefore, Shared governance and PME at the earliest stages probably constitutes more of an investment in the long-term accumulation of institutional knowledge. Uh, it is a, There clearly will be trust-building exercises built into this. And uh, rather than being a, a kind of plug-and-play, immediately um, effective group, it's going to take some time, probably on both sides, um, to move it forward. But Frankly, it's an investment we think should be made and will bear fruit in time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In our article, we
0: talk a little bit about some of the requirements for shared governance. Because we can't offer a prescription to say this is how it must be done, we talk about some of the key elements to make shared governance work, recognizing there's a lot of flexibility. And some of those elements include the ability to elect leadership Uh, the the ability to have the faculty pick an individual to serve as their chief representative. Uh, But there's another component, which is the ability to have a committee which will plug directly into the decision-making. It doesn't do a lot of good to have a a Senate that writes reports and just has them floating in the air. Uh, Having a Senate where they have direct ties to the senior administration, direct ties to the curriculum An act as an independent body, this really for us is the key. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It's very important that when a dean is constructing a curriculum and has some wonderful ideas, that there be a body not selected by the dean or by the senior administration who can take a completely different look and offer candid feedback. It doesn't mean that they have to abide by those recommendations, but there's something really special with a faculty senate of having a completely separate constituency weigh in, provide advice, because when you get agreement, it not only goes, creates a good product, but it builds in legitimacy and it makes everyone supportive of the overall reforms.
1: Right. And, and, and this, of course, you're arguing that, that having such an institutionally uh, structured relationship is better than the development of ad hoc committees or working groups.
0: Yes. And mm-hmm. much of what Penn State does, it's many committees, they have uh, very defined roles There are times when the Penn State Senate will create ad hoc committees, but the vast majority of its work is handled by regularly constituted committees that not only know what their responsibilities are, but have a reservoir of experience Mm -hmm. which know what problems have occurred and what they can anticipate. And I think Nicholas is exactly right. Uh, This is a process that builds up over time. But once it begins working, it becomes obvious how effective it is at helping to redirect the institution's limited resources.
1: Right.
2: Right. In fact, I might answer that question in another way that I think is important in the issue of ad hoc versus institutionalizing these structures. In institutionalizing them, I believe you could begin to address what probably is not only the elephant in the room, but the greatest barrier to the implementation of shared governance. And that is the necessary culture change that's going to take place that there needs to be an institutionally sanctioned space where aspects of the hierarchical structure of PME will be it will be recognized that they are on a kind of pause let's say that there is room to say that a decision that is being made above me is not an optimal decision that after a consultation with a group of other elected faculty members, we have deemed it uh, that there's a better option and that we would like to express that option with the knowledge that it could also not be actioned. Mm-hmm. But that 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 in and of itself does not become a kind of dereliction of duty, rejection of hierarchy, or in any way disrespect a superior um, a superior or someone in a more advanced rank. And if we could create that space, I think that's where the culture change would be in many cases the hardest because you can install probably the skeleton of shared governance. And so on the surface, you'd have a cosmetic version of shared governance. But if we can't get to a situation where we can begin to create institutional space for like a, dissension is not the right word, but opportunities to express an opinion that is in opposition to your superior. If we can't right. do that, then shared governance will remain surface level. It will. It's sort of like a lowercase s shared governance. <laughs> governance.
1: Say. Well, and and I would say you you put your finger on something that I wanted to make sure that we were going to talk about. Uh, You know, the three of us, we've all been to graduate school. We all have PhDs. We've all been involved with faculty discussions. And so it is not a surprise to us if I say that faculty have a reputation, and I'd say this everywhere, of just not liking stuff and especially not liking decisions made by administration. Um, And the issue of the, 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 the interaction between dissent. Yes, faculty should have a place to dissent. But there are some administrators who will say that that's basically all that faculty do. But if uh, how do we manage dissent and constructive cooperation in a way that this uh, that faculty can, uh, you know, the way that you described it, Nicholas, was really good, right? The idea that people should be allowed to be part of the discussion and then to understand and respect when a diff- decision is made that's different from their preferences. Yeah, because that's always the hardest thing in any kind of organization: is what yeah. do you do when you lose a vote?
2: Yeah, I couldn't uh, agree more. <laughs> uh, to answer that. Yeah. Uh first, I think it's a really important. And now that I'm on the board of trustees uh, <laughs> at Penn State, I, I feel like I, I know this better than I ever have in my entire life because uh, I get a lot of unsolicited feedback from faculty I, members. I bet you do. And um, so from that vantage point, I have to remain perpetually reminded that we pay faculty members on a daily basis to be critical and skeptical. That is (laughs) part of their role. So that they take this zeal that they have for science or the arts and bring it into their service work that becomes the kind of the raw material of shared governance. I don't want anyone to ever be surprised by that. Like whether you prefer it or not, fine. Mm -hmm. But a hammer is a hammer. Right. And it will drive a nail. And that <laughs> is exactly done. how this kind of situation works. And so I think that that's another piece, too, where a faculty member shows up and they're going to be critical, say, of a um, curricular proposal. No dean should ever be surprised about that. Like, to mm-hmm. pretend that mm-hmm. you're surprised, it, 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 frankly, I don't buy that. I don't think anyone should ever be that way. And especially if you're perpetually surprised, like you're just not learning from the situation. So that's number one. Two, I think you can circumvent, if not completely obviate, most of these issues by exactly institutionalizing shared governance, so that there mm-hmm. is a clear and shared understanding of where the you know where the buck stops, and um, that would apply to everything from ultimate decision making to the appropriate formulation of these criticisms, uh, as well as, and I think this would be the healthiest thing that you know once you've had your say the meeting concludes and leadership has to make a decision everything that just happened in that room we go right back to regular pme as soon as it's done yeah and i feel like that's the that's the hurdle for
1: mm-hmm. me yeah matthew what do you think about that i've seen some really
2: hopeful signs uh, at the
0: war college mm-hmm. where i've been involved in some very vigorous debates over matters that were really important people had very strong disagreements about Fundamental matters of curriculum. And ultimately, I think the institution benefited from that disagreement. I got the sense that this hadn't happened very often before, at least in the way in which I got to witness it. But in the end, I thought it really benefited both the faculty and the curricular process. Uh, So I was excited to, you know, the hope that that we would see more of this. And I think that we will. Uh, Bringing the notion that a vigorous debate and strong disagreement is not harmful to the institution, that in the end will help us design the best possible curriculum. And this was essentially the point of the papers. If we can harness the power of the faculty to achieve this goal of intellectual overmatch, because we have the, the knowledge and expertise with the faculty to meet and achieve the goals set by the joint chiefs. Right. So it's, it's really just a matter of taking the raw material that we have and using it in the most effective way to design curriculum and to design processes that will bring about the best possible military education.
2: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Matthew. I mean, that concept that disagreement can be a kind of strength in shared governance mm-hmm. is extremely important. And even more than that, in my opinion, the absence of disagreement does not equal strength, right? This is not necessarily something that is positive. And I think if what we need in this time now is strength, And that we need to find the strength and the will to reach overmatch, then why leave a tool on the table? I mean, if shared governance is available in multi-form, it's almost unconscionable not to at least consider the option.
1: Especially if we're considering that the intellectual overmatch we seek is to encourage the triumph of representative democracies over autocratic governments around the world. Gentlemen, this has been a a delightful conversation. I hope that uh, everyone will check out the article, which is listed in the show notes, and that you will uh, follow up on what happens with this discussion about shared governance. So Nicholas Rowland, Matthew Wessner, thanks so much for joining us today on A Better piece. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Piece because you know you need to subscribe to A Better Piece. And after you have subscribed on your podcatcher of choice, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast because that is how more people can find out about us so that we can continue to widen the community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but... We will have another one here at A Better Peace. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.